InfoWars, the most banned network in the world. An anonymous person once said, if the situation was hopeless, their propaganda would not be necessary. And that's why we're here tonight at the premiere of this very important documentary film, COVID Land Part One, The Lockdown. The major corporations of the planet are on record saying they are using COVID-19 to bring in the Great Reset and a worldwide cashless society system tied directly to the vaccine passports. That in the near future, they will add carbon taxes to that track and trace and tax everywhere we go. And that decide when we're allowed to leave or what state or nation we're allowed to travel to. That's why this is such a big deal. And this is part one in a five-part miniseries that exposes not just what's happening with the COVID medical tyranny power grab, but who's behind it and how to stop it. So I hope that all of you watching this film for free at Band.Video and on other platforms across the internet will realize that private citizens spent millions of dollars to produce this film at the highest levels of production with close to 50 experts interviewed. This documentary is also extremely important because it's a piece of history. Most of the archival footage you're about to see has been expunged. It's been memory holed and taken off the internet because the establishment has purposely been lying to us and changing their story. That's why this first part of the series is beyond critical for all of you to get out to your friends, your family, your neighbors, and to people you don't even know because we are all in this together. And humanity has hope because we do have each other. We do have the people out there that care enough to be watching and sharing this film. So here it is, COVID Land Part 1, The Lockdown. COVID-19 is the greatest fraud ever pushed on mankind. It is not about a virus. Today I am officially declaring a national emergency. The U.S. is under a national state of emergency. This virus doesn't discriminate. It attacks everyone. This is truly an unprecedented situation. COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. There is no American that is immune. We will be suspending all travel from Europe to the United States. This is not a drill, it's a pandemic. We are at war. Bare shelves and panic buying. Panic buying empties many shelves as people try to stock up uh, in anticipation of a quarantine and certainly fear at uh, a record high this weekend. You must stay at home. A 14-day quarantine will be mandatory. Spain and France have now joined Italy in banning people from leaving their homes. You absolutely must stay at home. All gatherings are canceled until further notice. 
This means no weddings, in-person services, or even parties. Closed schools, empty auditorium, canceled events. Game tonight has been postponed. The NBA suspending the rest of its season. And the NHL has decided to suspend its 2019-20 season. This is a deadly, serious situation. The leading model estimating lives lost to the virus now predicts by December, 3,000 Americans will die each day. In their estimates, they had between 1.5 million and 2.2 million people in the United States succumbing to this virus. Are you thinking that hundreds of thousands of Americans could die from this? You know, I say that and it sometimes gets taken out of context, but we have to be realistic and honest. Yes, it is possible. So listen to the advice of experts. Stay home and keep two meters apart and don't gather in groups. This is serious. Six feet matters. I am directing all non-essential retail businesses to indefinitely close their physical stores. Almost 100,000 small businesses permanently closed since the pandemic. It's better to be six feet apart right now than six feet under. Bottom line, full stop. No negotiating, no store, no running to the gas station. You're self-isolating, simple as that. If you do not comply with these instructions, you could face serious fines and even prison time. I have uh, issued an executive order. It's not a suggestion, it's an order. If people stick to the rules, their task will be minimal. But if they put their lives and the lives of others at risk, they'll now have the powers to stop them. We will shut you down, we will cite you, and if we need to, we will arrest you and we will take you to jail. The time for educating people into compliance is over. We're watching you and we are gonna take decisive action. I am directing all non-essential businesses to close. I repeat, if you are not an essential business, I'm using my power as governor under an emergency declaration to order you to close. There's no question that fear is probably the most powerful force that drives human action. And it overrides any rational thought. If you think you're going to die, nothing else matters. You're focused totally on how you can survive. I think that's important to keep in mind because fear can be generated falsely by a false narrative. People can be told that something is going to happen that's very bad, and, and if they believe it, they'll be afraid of it, even though it's an invented scenario. So if you want to control people's um, activities and even their thoughts today, all you have to do is scare them. It doesn't make too much difference whether the threat that you're using to scare them is real or fabricated. As long as they believe it's real, uh, that's all that's important.
COVID Land is a documentary series about the global deception known as the COVID-19 pandemic, with key interviews from scientists, doctors, nurses, authors, and subject matter experts we untangle the lies about the lockdowns, the face mask, and the so-called COVID vaccines, and show you how the global elite are using health and climate scares to fast-track their New World Order agenda. In this first episode, we expose the failed experiment of the lockdowns and the fraud of death counts in COVID cases. As you will see, each piece of the official story does not stand up to common sense and science. Let's start our journey by reviewing the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. In December of 2019, rumors began to spread that a new SARS outbreak occurred in Wuhan, China. Governments uniformly claimed there was no cause for concern. Here in Canada, the risk remains low. Videos went viral on social media of people having seizures or falling over in the streets, supposedly dead from the virus. Some footage showed the Chinese government welding shut the doors of apartment buildings with people inside. By February of 2020, mainstream media began reporting on the rumored outbreak and how Wuhan had been placed under lockdown. In the weeks that followed, the Lombardy region of Italy went under lockdown as well. And on March 9th, 2020, Italy imposed a nationwide lockdown. Two days later, on March 11th, the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic under the pretense of a novel coronavirus that they claimed had a death rate of 3.4%. More than 190 member countries of the WHO each bound by law to adopt the international health regulations, move swiftly to declare a state of emergency and impose lockdowns, working in lockstep to put most of the global population under martial law. They decreed that only essential workers and businesses can operate, and it was just two weeks to flatten the curve. Yet at the same time, they emphasized it was our new normal. With little to do but stay indoors, millions of people watched the propaganda movie Contagion, making it the number one trending movie on Netflix in March of 2020. A film promoting the idea of health passes, social distancing, and contact tracing. Governments extended the stay-at-home orders again and again as their narrative shifted from flattening the curve to keep doing this until there's a vaccine. Mainstream news repeatedly claimed that hospitals were like war zones. Now at six, New York City hospitals, now war zones, stretched to the limits, cases doubling, deaths spiking. How crews are grappling with the crisis now. They said the bodies were piling up and that frontline staff were working around the clock. Many hospitals are overwhelmed. Hospitals overwhelmed with patients who keep coming. Ambulances lining up for up to six hours to offload patients in Jackson, Mississippi, and up to eight hours in Memphis and Los Angeles. Boris Johnson's chief scientific advisor said that UK hospital wards resemble a war zone. It's what we call a disaster situation. Doctors call it a COVID war zone. People will die in the hallways of our hospitals. A sign of how dire the situation is, the governor announcing that he has ordered more body bags and refrigerated trucks to handle the increase in deaths statewide. 
Yet citizen journals visited many of the reported hot zones and uncovered they were remarkably calm. Entire parking lots were empty, along with the waiting rooms, hallways, and patient areas. This same pattern transpired around the world. I came here all the way from Winnipeg so that I could check it out with my very own eyes. And I'm gonna walk through it with you so you can see for your very self exactly how not busy it is. This is the waiting room. It would normally be packed with people, as you can see, completely empty today. And there's no one in the hospital. Exactly. Nobody. Nobody. What is going on in this country? They discharged everybody. So there's nobody even in there. Nobody's in there. Nobody's in the hospital. How is that possible in a medical pandemic? That's fake news, that's why. <laughs> Elmhurst Hospital is really at the center of this crisis here in the city and in the country with doctors desperately trying to keep up with the growing number of patients as supplies dwindle. This is the epicenter of the apocalypse, but it sure looks like a ghost town to me. Where's all the sick people at? Where's all the COVID patients? Oh, behind these? No. When every single day, patients are lining up outside here, many of them with cold and flu-like symptoms. They come here to be tested. And look at that. Nobody. Completely empty. This is police, no EMS, nothing. You can see barricades behind us set up here outside of the hospital to keep order here because so many have been lining up every day to get tested. Where's the long lines of the people trying to get tested? I've been here for an hour. Not one person has walked up to the tents. Not one. Okay? So, and look at all the ambulances down the block. You see any ambulances? Somebody else take a video. Look at more people are taking videos because no one's believing the fake media. You see all the ambulances Everybody. that are on the block down there? Everybody They're all parked. They've been there for an hour. A refrigerated truck has now been brought in here, a makeshift morgue. Here's the refrigerated truck for the dead people, but no action. City ambulances have seen a surge in calls, responding to nearly 5,800 Thursday. All parked ambulances, no patients, nobody's rushing anywhere. In fact, we've got a couple of ambulances here waiting to be called into action. Here's some busy, crazy, busy guys. Yep, they're on their cell phone, watching Netflix. And officials say this, unfortunately, is just the beginning with the crisis expected to last for months and the peak of it all still on the horizon. So again, there are no lines of people. There is no mass chaos out here, contrary to what the mainstream media is telling you. Meanwhile, the disturbing trend of hospital dance videos went viral online, with healthcare workers in full PPE performing choreographed dance routines. They said there was a critical shortage in personal protective equipment, that hospital workers were overwhelmed, and that people were dying. Yet we saw numerous examples across the world of doctors and nurses joking around in vacant hospitals. You would think a pandemic would be a solemn time, especially for those on the front lines. The hard facts are as follows. Protocols were implemented that changed how we treat upper respiratory illness. 
elderly hospice patients were wrongfully put on ventilators. People sick with respiratory symptoms were told to stay at home. Others were quarantined with the elderly in long-term care facilities. Taxpayers paid for empty field hospitals, which were only to be taken down, most without seeing a single patient. Like the State University Stony Brook and Old Westbury facilities, and the U.S. Navy hospital ship in New York. The state of Colorado continues to shell out millions of dollars in taxpayer money for a field hospital that has never been used, not once. We found hundreds of beds empty at Wisconsin's makeshift alternative care facility in Milwaukee. The state's three overflow field hospitals remain open, but empty. The tents put in place by many hospitals across the nation were set up to help in the event of an overflow of emergency room patients. Seipel says the tents were never used at St. Luke's Monroe campus. Furloughs of hospital staff increased and life-saving procedures were canceled or delayed. Hospitals across the country are cutting pay and furloughing workers and healthcare workers in the upstate. They're feeling the impact as well. Emergency rooms around the Bay Area appear to be unusually empty. We've seen a 40% drop in the emergency room visits. You know, this is a phenomenon that's being seen throughout the East Bay. Our volumes are significantly down from normal, and that's what is being seen across the entire Bay Area. KPIX News surveyed local medical centers. We found visits to Bay Area EDs have dropped anywhere from 30 to 50%. Hundreds of hospital staff have been furloughed across Tennessee. 4,000 more furloughs were announced, bringing the total up to 5,500. Now, UW Medicine Hospital leaders, they're also going to be taking cuts to their salaries. Have you been furloughed yourselves? Yes, as a matter of fact, today I'm, I am off today because of low volume. Why the heck are hospitals telling healthcare workers to stay home during the biggest health crisis of our lifetime? The reality is that many people die every day especially with a large aging population. So how should we interpret the constantly rising numbers of COVID cases and deaths? Just how accurate and reliable are these figures? It is imperative that you understand the information we are about to show you, because the elite intend to keep us in fear and use more lockdowns to further their agenda. We start out with Tony Fauci right around mid-February, I think it was like February 17th, saying that this virus, coronavirus that we're seeing in Wuhan, China, is going to have minimal effect on the United States of America. And then within about 11 or 12 days on February 28th, Bill Gates comes forward and says, no, in fact, this is the once in a century pandemic that we've been planning for. Of course, he's you know, referencing Event 201 and the work that they have been doing to prepare for a pandemic in the future. And then overnight, literally I think it was within about five or six days, right around March 4th, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, changes the way that we calculate death of specifically coronavirus. Remember, coronavirus is just amongst, you know, it's a family of viruses that are included in what we call the common cold, rhinovirus, coronaviruses. We also have flu viruses. Why were we all of a sudden singling out 
one of these viruses and changing the way that we were going to calculate death. And then here's what happened. Up until that March 4th decree by the CDC that was sent out to every corner, every hospital, every doctor saying, you're going to change the way you record death here. Well, prior to that, everyone that's ever had a relative die of heart disease or die of cancer, we're all used to what we're told by the hospital. Usually, they don't actually die of the heart failure, they die of pneumonia. Um, in cancer, it happens all the time. They got pneumonia. how they get pneumonia? Well, they caught a flu or they caught a cold. And normally that won't affect people, they'll tell you, but because their immune systems were so destroyed by the disease they were suffering from, their body was unable to mount a defense, they developed pneumonia and they died. We never in those moments said they died of the flu or they died of the coronavirus or they died of the rhinovirus that infected them and then you know gave them pneumonia. We always said died from complications of heart disease, died from complications of cancer. But now what the CDC was saying is, no, we're no longer going to say that the cause of death was the heart disease. No, we're going to make that cold what killed them. And the underlying situation will be, you know, tossed off as, well, yeah, they had heart disease. Yeah, they had cancer. In fact, in the United States of America, about 96% of the people that died of uh, coronavirus died with two and a half other, on average, two and a half other life-threatening comorbidities, meaning they didn't just have heart disease, they had heart disease and cancer, heart disease and COPD, diabetes and cancer. And so these extremely sick people make up the body of who was dying of coronavirus, but we have to ask ourselves, are they dying from coronavirus or are they dying with coronavirus? And I think that you skewed those numbers. Think about it. We have, you know, 640,000 people die every year of heart disease. Hundreds of thousands die from cancer. Now, all of a sudden, the people that happen to have coronavirus when they died of those, it would say it was a coronavirus death. That's one way you bloat the numbers of death from what could have been a common cold. This is from the National Vital Statistics memo, March 24th, 21, and this is a quote from that. It says, the rules for coding and selection of the underlying cause of death are expected to result in COVID-19 being the underlying cause more often than not, end of quote. And then the, the National Director of Vital Statistics answered the following question. The question was a good one. Should COVID-19 be listed on the death certificate only with a confirmed case? You'd think that would be an obvious question that, that they would answer in the affirmative. Yes, of course, if you're gonna call it COVID-19, there has to be a positive test. But this national director, Stephen Schwartz said, quote, COVID-19 should be reported on the death certificate for all decedents where the disease caused or is assumed to have caused or contributed to death. So he's he's telling us there March 24th when at, at that time there were you know very few even cases or deaths in the United States and he's telling us to skew it that direction. If I have a patient died uh, a month ago had fever cough and died after three days and maybe had been an elderly fragile individual and there happened to be an influenza epidemic around our community. I wouldn't put influenza on the death certificate and I've never been encouraged to do so. I would put probably uh, respiratory arrest would be the top line and the underlying cause of disease would be pneumonia and in the contributing factors I might well put emphysema or congestive heart failure. But I would never put influenza down as, as the underlying cause of death and yet that's what we're being asked to do here. 
you're saying there is a massive pressure to artificially inflate the number of COVID-19 cases. Yeah, I have directly been told to, if a patient has fever and cough or anything similar, to put this COVID-like diagnosis on the chart. So it's really important to understand that for the first time in U.S. history, that they are, they are coaching doctors on how to fill out death certificates. I've been a doctor over 30 years, and I've never had them try to coach me or skew me toward a particular diagnosis, never. When this first became public, um, one of the first times I saw it challenged was a press briefing, and somebody in the audience, a journalist who actually seemed to have some curiosity, said something to the effect of... Uh, can you talk about your concerns about deaths being misreported? So I think in this country, we've taken a very liberal approach to mortality. There are other countries that if you had a pre-existing condition, and let's say the virus called you to go to the ICU and then have a heart or kidney problem. Some countries are recording that as a heart issue or a kidney issue and not a COVID-19 death. Um, right now, we're still recording it. And we'll, I mean, the great thing about having forms that come in and a form that has the ability to mark it as COVID-19 infection, the intent is right now that those, if someone dies with COVID-19, we are counting that as a COVID-19 death. Are you, can you be sure? I mean, you hear from coroners that that's not necessarily the case. Are, are you sure? How can you be confident about that? And is there any concern that it skews the data that you're trying to collect in terms of projections and, and things like that? I, I think there's so much focus now on coronavirus. You know, I can't imagine if someone comes in with coronavirus, goes to an ICU, and they have an underlying heart condition and they die, they're going to say cause of death heart attack. <laughs> I, I cannot see that that happening. So I don't think it's going to be a problem. And sure enough, what happened is we saw many, many situations in which that occurred. And sometimes they became public because family members would challenge the, the death. There was one in um, uh, Florida, for example, where a nurse died and uh, it was during the height, height of the pandemic. And so, of course, the party line was that, of course, she died of COVID, but later her family became furious. Apparently she had kidney disease or something, and that's what killed her. And they absolutely insisted on setting the record straight. Another one, and this, I try to insert some humor in this once in a while so you just don't go crazy, but in Washington State, it turned out that there were a lot of inflated deaths. And one journalist asked uh, Governor Inslee if uh, deaths were inflated. And he said, uh, oh no, that's nothing but a conspiracy theory from the planet of Pluto. I'm not kidding, that's what he said. The problem is you got some people out there who are fanning these conspiracy claims from the planet Pluto. And it's just disgusting what they're trying to say of all these crazy deep state malarkey. Well, later on, when uh, the records were made public, it was not a conspiracy theory from the planet of Pluto, actually. Um, there were inflated deaths. They were even taking gunshot wounds and categorizing them as COVID deaths. It's the first time coroner Brenda Bach has felt so frustrated by a cause of death. These two people had tested positive for COVID, but that's not what killed them. The gunshot wound is what killed them. We had a case in uh, January here where we had, we had someone die. The cause of death was due to an accidental drug overdose. The decedent had tested positive for COVID, 
um, as soon as that death came across uh, to the state, they went ahead and classified it and put a statistic as a COVID death. To the family, their dad died from advanced cancer. In fact, Avamir considered Fred recovered from COVID. But a few days after his death, Lincoln County Public Health reported him as their ninth COVID death. They now have 10 deaths. I mean, he, that's not what he died from. He died from colon cancer, not the COVID. And places are listing loved ones as COVID deaths, and they're labeling that, and it's just not true. So if a person died in a car accident from alcohol poisoning or a gunshot wound and had COVID, would that be considered a COVID death? Well, according to the OHA, the short answer, yes. I could give lots of examples like that, but the strange and unusual way in which the deaths were determined on this death certificates definitely inflated deaths. And uh, the difference between dying from and with a COVID, we'll probably spend the rest of our days figuring out which was which. The case definition is, is very simplistic. It means at the time of death, it was a COVID positive diagnosis. So that means that if you were in hospice and had already been given, you know, a few weeks to live, and then you also were found to have COVID, that would be counted as a COVID death. It means it, technically, if even if you died of a clear alternate cause, but you had COVID at the same time, it's still listed as a COVID death. So um, everyone who's listed as a COVID death doesn't mean that that was the cause of the death, but they had COVID at the time of death. The determination of the cause of death is a big deal. It has impact on estate planning. It has impact on future generations. And the idea that we're going to allow people to massage and sort of game the numbers is a real issue because we're going to undermine the trust. And right now, as we see politicians doing things that aren't necessarily motivated on fact and science, the public's going to, their trust in politicians is already wearing thin. There was a, a report in Orlando a week or so ago where you had someone in a motorcycle accident died, unfortunately, but that was categorized as a COVID death just because the person had previously tested positive. And so, you know, I think the public, when they see the fatality figures, you know, they want to know who was who died because they caught COVID. If you're just in a car accident, and we've had other instances in which it just was no real relationship that has been counted. So we want to look at that and see, you know, how, how pervasive that issue is as well. Why would New York City want to inflate a death toll? I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, it's bad enough as it is. It's painful enough as it is. Why would you want to inflate a death toll? You will always have conspiracy theories when you have uh, very challenging public health crises. They are nothing but distractions. You know, I can assure you, we have so much to do to protect the health and the welfare of the American people that I would just hope we just put those conspiracy stuff and let somebody write a book about it later on, but not now. One of the big things the corporate media does to deceive the public is say, oh, there's all these crazies that don't believe a virus even exists. And th they're saying nobody's dying. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that most of the deaths that are attributed to COVID were flu, were pneumonia, were car wrecks, were gunshot wounds, were people that drowned, people that had heart attacks. And that's admitted. When you actually read the guidelines of the CDC, 
and the other national health services around the world who all get their orders from Big Pharma and the UN, they admit that they count basically all other deaths as COVID. And so if someone comes in with a gunshot wound, if someone comes in who's been in a fire, they test them for COVID to see, quote, if they're safe or not. And the machine, 94% of the time on average, says that they're positive for COVID. So then if they die of the gunshot wound, or if they die from the fire they were in, or if they die from the pneumonia they have, it's marked as COVID. And it's been incentivized in the US, in Europe, in Australia, in the UK, in Canada, that massive amounts of money are paid to hospitals and clinics and nursing homes if they're keeping COVID patients, thus incentivizing it again. And they tried to have the fake fact checkers funded by Bill Gates again with NewsGuard come out and say, oh, there's no money given to hospitals or nursing homes that have COVID patients. But even USA Today had to admit that the claim that they're paid extra for COVID patients is true. On average, $53,000 more for a COVID patient. There are so many financial incentives that go along with diagnosing COVID-19. Um, in March 2020, there was the multi-trillion dollar COVID relief fund CARES Act 2020. And in that, you know, multi, you know, trillion dollar COVID, you know, relief package, $175 billion went to hospitals and doctors. And that doesn't include the additional 20% reimbursement for a hospitalization that they can say was related to COVID-19. Right now, Medicare has determined that if you have a COVID-19 admission to the hospital, you'll get paid $13,000. If that COVID-19 patient goes on a ventilator, you get $39,000 three times as much. Nobody can tell me after 35 years in the world of medicine that sometimes those kinds of things impact on what we do. Some physicians really have a bent towards public health and they will put down influenza or whatever because that's their preference. I try to stay very specific, very precise. If I know I've got pneumonia, that's what's going on, the death certificate. I'm not gonna add stuff just because it's convenient. So a lot of manipulation was done to make it appear that a lot of people died of COVID. And I believe the CDC still has this on their website, but if they don't, we save, we have screenshots of everything because we assumed everything would sooner or later get taken down. But in August of 2020, on their website, they basically said that of all the deaths that had been attributed to COVID, only 6% of them were actually due to COVID alone. Only about 6% of the coronavirus deaths were actually from coronavirus. The other 94% of people that had died to that point had other comorbidities. And so there was no autopsies performed to determine if they died from their lung cancer or if they died from coronavirus. If they died with coronavirus, with a, with a positive test or with symptoms, even with a negative test, they were lumped into this group of coronavirus deaths. We've never done that before with any disease. 94 percent of the people who die from COVID are people with comorbidities or other underlying conditions. 94 percent. Here's what else they did. Every year prior to COVID-19, if you had trouble breathing, if you had a rhinovirus or a flu virus, you're being an upper respiratory condition, when you went to a hospital, what's the first thing they do? They put you on oxygen. Say, you know what? It looks like your oxygen levels are, are dropping. You're having some difficulty breathing. First thing we're gonna do is give you some oxygen. Great idea, except that with this coronavirus, they denied you oxygen. It's the first time we've seen anything like it in history. 
Why? They had an excuse for it. They said, well, because this coronavirus is so deadly, we can't risk giving you oxygen, which would aerosolize the virus and spread it through the hospital. Therefore, we can only put you in ICU bed. You can't be in any other bed. And you've got to, you know, if you take up that bed, you've got to be put on a ventilator. So until you need a ventilator, there's really nothing we can do for you. And so what we ended up doing was forcing people to crash. Instead of giving them the most obvious treatment right up front, which would be oxygen and maybe vitamin D and, and perhaps a steroid to deal with the infection in their lungs, we denied them everything until their oxygen level dropped so low that then we drugged them and put them into a coma so that we could put them on a ventilator. And we know now, looking back, that ventilators killed nine out of 10 people that were put on them due to coronavirus. We murdered people. Mechanical ventilators are sophisticated and require training to ensure positive outcomes and limit harm. Improper settings, failure to monitor the patient, and not communicating changes amongst the medical team can result in poor patient outcomes, including death. The outcome for a patient who has to be ventilated if they have COVID-19 is horrific. Chinese researchers studying critically ill patients on ventilators in Wuhan found in a group of 32, only one person survived. Another study from Wuhan suggests about 20% of patients on ventilators recover. Due to the inherent risk of mechanical ventilation, it is paramount that all personnel involved in the care of patients follow strict safety protocols. But that is not what happened. You have doctors telling them that they have a choice, you know, like they could likely die from this or they can be saved by, you know, getting a tube and that will help them breathe. We can give you a little help breathing. And that's it. Then they get then they get the sedation and they went they go to sleep and that's it. They don't wake up. He's in a body bag. It was like the day before intubation who was fine on the yeah. rebreather. And then they intubated and then he got a new mold and then they put in a cap too and then it's And now he's thirty seven years old and dead. Well it was probably one of the worst experiences in my entire life. But all I can think about is that at least he knows that we were fighting for him. When he died, you know, like all these negative tests and they're, and they're putting them on these vents, hopeful that they'll get it. They're being put on these COVID floor. It's murder. It, it straight up is, it is setting these people up for failure based on money. Who's paying this bonus of 29000 I believe it's Medi Medicaid, Medicare. And then you have to think, you are also charging supplies, more supplies, more supplies. That's just like a bonus money. But I know the orders are coming from uh, the above, someone above. And everybody says that it's someone higher up. What is the likelihood of coming out of the hospital you're in? I'll tell you that the unit that I've been on, the only person that survived, ironically, is a guy who pulled his own uh, tube out. So he woke up enough to be able to do that? Yeah. He wanted it out. He should have never been on in the first place. 
they, they restrain everybody. We have soft restraints on all of our patients, the majority of them, for sure. Which is, I think, is crazy. But it goes with it goes with the territory because everybody's really lazy and it's easier to just treat them with drugs or tie them to their beds. So he was tied up. Obviously, what is that going to do? It's going to make you're tied up in a hospital. You don't have any family. What do you think you're going you're, you're going to freak out? So he was. And how did he wake up? Um, turns out that he did drugs. So he was resistant. He was to he, fentanyl. All of this stuff that we give yeah. normal people didn't cut it for him. <sighs> so he ended up, yeah. I'm like you just say, oh, I'm like you just saved your own life, you know. <laughs> That's crazy. He, you know, what's sad is that he thinks we saved his life. <sighs> you know what I mean? So he's like, you saved me, and I, I couldn't. You know, I don't have the heart to be like. No, man, you saved yourself. You have like nine lives because had he had he not pulled that out, he would definitely he would definitely be dead for sure. They don't excavate anyone. Here's the problem: not a single patient here since this thing began has been discharged or if or successfully excavated. Like I referred to earlier, if you tell people like something enough over and over like the media was telling people you know fence 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 and then you say as a nurse no vents you know it, it's not a good right <laughs> it's not a good position to be in because i'm going against what the government says but does the government really have everybody's best interests in mind you know are they thinking of you know, the 57-year-old grandma that, you know, wasn't, didn't have to die, or the 37-year-old that was totally fine when he walked into the emergency room and he didn't have to die. You know, are they thinking about, you know, maybe the guy that had a drug problem that didn't have to be vented, but he saved his own life? I don't have anything to gain. I have everything to lose by sharing what I'm sharing right now, you know, but so be it, you know. I think it's important that these families get closure and I hope that someday they'll be able to hold them accountable mm -hmm. for what they did. So here we have an international policy that made the misuse of ventilators the standard of care and altered the coding of mortalities, giving us inflated COVID death numbers. The World Health Organization simply had to issue new guidelines, and public health agencies implemented the policy changes, creating the global framework for a false pandemic. If you manipulated numbers like this at your job, you'd expect to be accused of fraud. The official COVID death count is willfully and grossly inaccurate. Let's now turn our attention to cases. As the alleged pandemic of the century carried on, the media and politicians fixated on cases to justify their continued lockdowns. In the years prior, the legal definition of a pandemic was modified from requiring an enormous amount of deaths to being vaguely based on the worldwide prevalence of a disease. 
In other words, governments could technically engineer a pandemic using positive test results even from people without symptoms, which is precisely the scenario with COVID-19. To fully appreciate the deception of COVID cases, we first must understand the capabilities and limitations of the PCR technology. When we look at this pandemic, it's been driven by testing. In many ways, uh, it's been referred to as a test-demic. Anytime you raise the amount of testing you do, you also raise the amount of infections you're gonna find. That's just an obvious mathematical scenario. Behind this pandemic is the PCR test we've all heard about. And that was designed by a scientist named Kerry Mullis. He actually won the Nobel Prize for designing PCR testing. You're familiar with the testing. That's the uh, the nasal swab. They take this big four to six inch swab. They jam it down your nose. They, what seems like, you know, takes an hour to do the swabbing. Uh, they pull out some samples of your DNA. They put it on a little dish. We send it to the lab. The lab then takes that. And what they do is they, they look at this under a really specific type of a, of a device, this machine, and they amplify your DNA. They actually take your own DNA and they magnify it. They blow it up, uh, you know, two times, four times, six times, again and again and again. And every time they magnify it and amplify the cycle, you can see more and more stuff that's going on in your own DNA and in that tissue sample. Well, we know that if you blow it up big enough, at least according to PhD Nobel Prize winning scientist, Kerry Mullis, who's the doctor that created the PCR test, if you blow that uh, PCR sample size up big enough, you can see almost anything on anybody. And with PCR, if you do it well, you can find almost anything in anybody it starts making you believe in the sort of Buddhist notion that everything is contained in everything else, right? I mean, because if you can amplify one single molecule up to, a, to something that you can really measure, which PCR can do, then there's just very few molecules that you don't have at least one single one of them in your body, okay? So that could be thought of as a misuse of it just to, to claim that it's meaningful. And one of the things that we forget is that 45% of our human DNA, which is called our microbiome, is made up of viruses that live inactive and dormant in our body. That's part of our immune system. And so if you've ever been exposed to a coronavirus in the past, whether it's a cold, a flu, a respiratory infection, that can show up on a PCR test if you blow it up above a certain amplification. I don't know if you remember last summer where there were laboratory tests that were done in labs in Florida and in Georgia, and they were showing 100%, literally 100% of their tests were coming through were positive for the SARS-CoV-2 test. There are dozens of labs that process tests. On the state's website, we found numerous labs that are only reporting positive test results. So they show a 100% positivity rate. That means every single person tested was positive. We sifted through the reports to find local testing sites with high numbers. Like this Centricare, 83 people tested and all positive. Check out the Orlando VA, a positivity rate of 76%. NCF Diagnostics has a location in Alachua, 88% of tests coming back positive, and 98% for Orlando Health. Of course, it makes you wonder if these numbers are wrong, are other numbers on the report also wrong? 
The only reason why that was is because they were testing at 40 amplification and above. And if you look at uh, the big uh, laboratories in the United States and across the globe, and I know because I've spoken to almost all of them, the PCR testing is done at 37 to 45 amplifications, which is going to cause a 97% false positive or more. That's why you're seeing all these people that have positive tests, but yet have no symptomatology. And remember, you can be diagnosed with SARS-CoV-2 but not develop COVID-19, which is the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2, because if you're asymptomatic, you don't have the disease by definition of the CDC. Now, in his own words, the PCR test should never be used to diagnose disease. Let me repeat that. The man who created the PCR test said, this test should never be used to diagnose disease. It is simply a tool to find if there's even a fragment of an illness inside of somebody. It came about when they were looking for AIDS and very difficult to find viruses that you wouldn't, as he said, you can't always, you know, he made fun of Tony Fauci. Kerry Mullis did not like Tony Fauci, thought he was completely uneducated for the job, wasn't a scientist, was basically just a pencil pusher, a bureaucrat that controlled scientists. And Kerry Mullis had a serious problem with Tony Fauci. Guys like Fauci get up there and start talking, you know, he didn't know anything really about anything. And I'd say that to his face, nothing. The man thinks you can take a blood sample and stick it in an electron microscope and if it's got a virus in there, you'll know it. He doesn't understand electron microscopy and he doesn't understand medicine. And he, doesn't, he should not be in a position like he's in. Most of those guys up there on the top are just total administrative people and they don't know anything about what's going on at the bottom. You know, those guys have got an agenda, which is not what we would like them to have, being that we pay for them to take care of our health in some way. They've got a personal kind of agenda they make up their own rules as they go, they change them when they want to, and they smugly, like Tony Fauci, does not mind going on television in front of the people that pay his salary and lie directly into the camera. You can't expect the sheep to really respect the best and the brightest. They don't know the difference, really. I mean, I, I like humans, don't, don't get me wrong, but basically there is a, there is a, there's a vast, the vast majority of them do not possess the, the ability to judge who is and who isn't a really good scientist. I mean, that's a problem, that's a main problem actually with science, I'd say, in this century because science is being judged by people, funding is being done by people who don't understand it. Okay, who do we trust? Fauci? Fauci doesn't know enough to, you know, if Fauci wants to get on television with somebody who knows a little bit about this stuff and debate him, he could easily do it because he's been asked. And the beauty of a PCR is you can find something that is almost, it's so small, it's non-existent, or in some cases, really might be non-existent. And so what we know when we investigated this is that the PCR test tends to be about 100% accurate for about seven to 10 cycles. If you find a virus within seven to 10 cycles, then there's a good chance that you currently have fragments of, in this case, coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2 inside of you. But after that seven to 10 cycles, it starts to quickly decline in its accuracy. And so by the time you're at 25 cycles, you've dropped down to, you know, I think around 75 
uh, percent accurate. Even Anthony Fauci said himself that anything you find beyond 33 cycles in a PCR test, meaning you've amplified it 33 times, probably is not infectious material and wouldn't lead to an infection in anybody else, right? What is now sort of uh, evolving into a bit of a standard that if you get a cycle threshold of 35 or more, that the chances of it being replication competent are minuscule. Mm. So that if somebody, and you know, we do, we have patients and it's very frustrating for the patients as well as for the physicians. Somebody comes in and they repeat their PCR and it's like 37 cycle threshold. But you never, it, you almost never can culture virus yeah. from a 37 threshold cycle. So I think if somebody does come in with 37, 38, even 36, you got to say, you know, it's just, it's just dead nucleotides, period. Mm. The New York Times reported that the CDC's own calculations suggest that it is extremely difficult to detect any live viruses in a sample above a threshold of 33 cycles. Anthony Fauci even admits that high cycle thresholds produce false positive results from dead nucleotides. And the truth is that we all have viral debris in our bodies. The more you magnify the sample, the greater the chance of detecting viral fragments that are not infectious outside of the spike protein. Without the spike protein that binds to the ACE2 receptor, the virus has no opportunity to enter the cell and replicate. So he's basically saying after 33 cycles, this test is useless for determining the existence of SARS-CoV-2. Yet when we looked in the United States of America at everybody using all of the testing facilities, and New York Times did this too, all the testing facilities that were doing PCR tests, they were running them for 45 cycles, meaning they were picking up, you know, such minuscule fragments that in, in Tony Fauci's own words, they couldn't have been infectious and they weren't the disease. And so how many people, we are talking about at 45 cycles, you can have a misdiagnosis rate as high as 98% false positives. In fact, the New York Times even put out a story, and I'm going to quote a little bit of what they said. There's glitches in the PCR test. 90% of the tests were not indicative of the active illness. I believe it was 2006 or seven, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, it was thought that there was an outbreak of whooping cough, and the staff there used the PCR uh, technology, because again, I don't want to refer to it as a test, um, to diagnose whooping cough, and it had a 0% efficacy rate, and that, I did not misspeak, it was actually 0%. And believe it or not, the New York Times covered that story and didn't take it down. As last I checked, it was still there. So the one time it was used in some medical setting, it had a 0% efficacy rate. Prior to COVID-19, when we would use PCR testing, we still use PCR testing for other things and it's useful sometimes, but it's, it's useful when you've actually isolated a particular organ, the genetic material of a particular organism. Then you could take that material and you know what you're looking for 
Whereas in, in the case of COVID-19, since we since it's it hasn't been proven, at least to my satisfaction, that we even had that have that genetic material, what are they actually amplifying? Nobody really knows what, what they're actually amplifying, but they amplify it exponentially, and then something that the more they amplify it, the more likely the genetic material that you're looking for, which Carrie Mullis called, you know, in a, a needle in a haystack you're more likely to get what you're looking for if you amplify it more times. And so to have relied on these PCR tests to drive the pandemic and also to drive this concept of asymptomatic carriers, this is something I want everyone to reflect back. When did you ever hear about an asymptomatic carrier? And really the question is, is what is an asymptomatic carrier? Is it somebody that is a false positive, which it very well could be using a test that is running way too many cycles to be accurate? Or is it just a healthy person whose body so absolutely kicked this virus's butt that they never had any symptoms? Even so, the body already killed that virus. And maybe there's some floating fragments that a test could pick up, but are they infectious? Either way, there's still questions on whether or not an asymptomatic carrier even exists and beyond that, does an asymptomatic carrier spread the disease at all? And almost every study around the world has said that we don't see any evidence of spread from asymptomatic carriers. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to your average person, but if asymptomatic carriers do not spread this illness, or if they, have to be a, if they happen to be just a false positive from a bad study, Either way, if they're not spreading, then we never should have locked down the world. Then masks are totally irrelevant. We can go back to the way we've practiced medicine since polio and smallpox, which is we quarantine sick people, not healthy people. That's what the PCR test did. The PCR test set up this false positive that had us start quarantining healthy people for the first time in world history. There is no scientific justification for quarantining healthy persons. It will not stop a respiratory viral illness. That's well established. What concerns me is that we actually have laws that say you cannot quarantine the healthy. Specifically, in my home state of California, this question of quarantining the healthy has been asked and answered. In 1905, when bubonic plague was a concern, the Department of Public Health attempted to quarantine the healthy. There's a landmark ruling, plaintiff named Juho, J-E-W-H-O. This took place in the San Francisco Chinatown area when the bubonic plague had kind of swept in that area. So the Department of Public Health, much like it's doing today, back then tried to restrict the activities of healthy persons. And they set out a 10 or 15 block by 15 block area where they said people who lived in that area couldn't have freedom for travel and assembly and work, just that area. That went to the California Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, absolutely not. You cannot quarantine a 15 by 15 block area of persons who are healthy. That's totally against the law. Juho is still the law of the land in California. It's just one example of the fact that we've never quarantined healthy persons. We have no legal right to quarantine healthy persons. And from a scientific perspective, it's well known that quarantining healthy persons is totally irrelevant and unhelpful in stopping the spread of a viral respiratory illness. Well, before COVID-19, you would never put a healthy person in quarantine. Before COVID-19, a whole lot of things would never have happened. And so for the first time ever, healthy people were told to stay at home. 
And not only was it a violation of everybody's constitutional rights, it turned out to be a terrible idea for health. One of the most incredible displays of that was Andrew Cuomo one day, who won an Emmy for his daily press conferences, which is just almost hard to wrap your arms around, but Andrew Cuomo one day giving a press conference um, had a chart showing that 66% of the people hospitalized in New York were people sheltering at home like they were told to. Overwhelmingly, the people were at home. Uh, where there's been a lot of speculation about this. A lot of people, again, had opinions. A lot of people have been uh, arguing uh, where they come from and where we should be focusing. But if you notice, 18% of the people came from nursing homes. Less than 1% came from jail or prison. But 66% of the people were at home, uh, which is shocking to us. So sheltering at home actually was hazardous to your health. And, uh, and then what, what was ironic about the whole thing, you couldn't make something like this up. In the background was the sign that he always had accompanying his, uh, his press conferences, stay home, stay safe. Well, how's that working out for you? 60, 66% of the hospitalizations, people staying at home. Locations that used high PCR thresholds, even up to 45, produce overblown case numbers which is why the vast majority of cases were asymptomatic. But that didn't stop governments from using the pointless case numbers to scare the people into keeping various stages of lockdown. Meanwhile, the economic realities began to set in. The World Bank estimates that 124 million people went into extreme poverty in 2020, the first time of an increase in 20 years. The International Labor Organization also reported that 114 million people lost their jobs in 2020 alone, with workers losing $3.7 trillion in missed earnings. Was this the effect of an actual pandemic, or is it the result of unscientific lockdowns, costing taxpayers over $10 trillion in government debt worldwide? Who stands to gain from this if you are the global elite? Lockdowns are a wonderful business model because they are selectively enforced to eliminate competition by destroying small and medium businesses. The elite's wealth grew by $5 trillion in 2020, with one new billionaire created every 17 hours throughout the year. What we are witnessing is economic warfare, a broadening of financial disparity, plunder by the superclass, and perhaps the greatest wealth transfer in history. I believe this is a psychological war upon society. This is not a protection of people's health. People are afraid of each other. You cannot have people isolated from each other to this degree being willing to squeal on each other. If you see something, say something. What, what they're doing is they are alienating the American people from itself, from each other, so that they can be easily manipulated and controlled by the state. And in my opinion, that's exactly what all of this social distancing and isolation and so forth, it's not about health. It's not about protecting us from a virus. This is all about alienating us from our own community 
so that we can be manipulated and controlled by the state. Uh, you can go back to Rahm Emanuel, you know, the old uh, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that, it's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before. I think the perceived crisis around this coronavirus is gonna end up being the, the greatest mechanism for stripping sovereignty and liberty and individual freedom in the history of mankind. You're here to protect us. Martin, you're under arrest for a breach of COVID no. regulations. You failed Matthew. to quarantine in a designated hotel no. when instructed to do so. No. Yeah, you're under arrest in relation to incitement. Incitement? Yeah. But Ballarat detectives were determined to question Zoe Bueller after the 28-year-old allegedly created this Freedom Day Facebook event, asking her friends to remember the 5th of September. Any device in this house we're taking? This is well, ridiculous. you're not taking my phone. Every person in attendance here today is in direct violation of social distancing rules and could be fined more than $1,600 each. Now Mayor de Blasio is asking New Yorkers who see anyone violating the social distancing order to report them. He's being taken away by the Brighton police for playing softball with his daughter in an empty park. When you see a crowd, when you see a line that's not distant, when you see a supermarket that's too crowded, anything, you can report it right away so we can get help there to fix the problem. You know the old expression about snitches? Well, in this case, snitches get rewards. We want to thank you for turning folks in and making sure we are all safe. Our free rights, our individual rights and liberties do not go away during a pandemic. And so we are able to say, we're able to be open and we're also able to be careful. People have the free will and the free right to say, I'm going to shop there, I'm gonna buy things there, I'm gonna come in and eat there, or I don't feel safe in that environment. And if they choose, they'll go somewhere else and we will either modify that because we need to in order for our businesses to survive, or we will decide that no, I would rather not have them come in because I'm standing up for what's right. And that's what we've seen again throughout the country is some people have stood up and said, no, you're not gonna step on our individual rights and liberties. The state health department has issued new restrictions to limit social gatherings, but some businesses are saying no, including Jimmy's Roadhouse in Nuego. Pomp Hair Salon up north, they are open. You know, they had six, they sent six cops into their salon and held the customers there and gave them misdemeanor charges and have pulled their license. Would you like to pay my Investigators from the Department of Consumer Affairs came into Pomp Salon in Lincoln Center this afternoon. You're really going to come in hard for Christmas. Do any of you have a soul? If we see continued non-compliance, they'll wind up facing misdemeanor charge, and DWP will step in and shut off their water and power. I mean, we're treated like basic criminals. We're treated like criminals. Carl Mankey's barbershop has had its license suspended. I'll be in this barbershop until Jesus comes, or they carry me out in handcuffs, one or the other. A Dallas County judge ordered a North Texas salon owner to spend time in jail for defying an order and opening her business last week. Officers handcuffed the restaurant's owner and charged him. As a father of three kids, I'm, I'm doing what I think every real American would. Should the restaurant open up again, there will be another bench warrant issued immediately, another pickup order, 93 days and $7,500. Well, I don't know how long you want to do this, man, but we can keep doing it all year long. 
It is 34-year-old Danny Presti's second run-in with the law in just a week. Tuesday night, he was arrested for opening his bar and restaurant to customers, defying Orange Zone COVID-19 orders, which banned indoor dining in that area. You remove the small businesses from the community. You remove the heart from the body. And if you remove the heart from the body, the body no longer works, right? The idea that they shut down the small players in the economy and allow the big players to continue to operate is just a pretty big flag that tells you where the money comes from politically. Uh, you write a big enough check, you can be included in the essential list. If you don't write a big enough check, then you're gonna be non-essential. That's, that's a streamlined way of saying that, and it's oversimplified, but it's basically true. I am in the same parking lot as a Walmart, and I have all these restrictions, but they don't have anything. So the double standard is just shocking to me as to why. I don't understand it. I mean, it's kind of like being down the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland. You're like, what is this world? <laughs> like, By what authority did you nullify the Bill of Rights in issuing this order? How do you have the power yeah, to we do were that? That's above my pay grade, Tucker. So I wasn't, uh, I wasn't thinking of the Bill of Rights when we did this. You know, uh, one of our colleagues sent me a cartoon of the framers signing the Constitution. And in this cartoon, Washington turns to Madison and says, let me get this straight. None of this counts if people get sick, right? You know, sort of a humorous way of mocking what's happening today. Your um, analysis of Governor Whitmer could apply to nearly all the remaining 49 governors who assume that they have the power to crush individual liberties, violate the Constitution, and write laws. Well, they don't. We are witnessing the slow death, the death in slow motion of civil liberties because these governors, these petty tyrants, will use this power again and again until some courageous federal court or an outraged public stops them. Take a look, this was a scene in front of Mac's public house late last night as hundreds showed up in support of owner Keith McAlarney. Never ever forget what has been done to you over this past year. Never ever forget what has been done to your children, what has been done to your careers, what has been done to your opportunities, to your dreams. Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab, they've all said that COVID-19 is not an existential threat. They've basically admitted that they're using it for the Great Reset to reorganize humanity. And so it's not the physical virus that's the threat, but the lockdowns and the shutdowns of the economy that devastate the first world cause mass starvation and death in the third world. What the New York Times says, COVID lockdowns are starving the third world to death. No, it's not the COVID lockdowns, it's the lockdowns that have done it. I, I want to be very clear, this is not the country that I grew up in. You know, I never thought I'd see a day where hardworking Americans are criminalized for trying to make a living supporting their family. We look at this uh, through the Constitution, which is very clear. In order for a law to be constitutional, it must fairly apply to all of our citizens equally. And that's not the case out here. And so having said that, I made the statement that I am not going to make criminals out of people who are trying to make a living. And I stand behind that statement. Come to my dinner table. Come to any of the dinner tables back here. Look our kids in the eyes and say, your, your father, your mother is an essential worker. They don't have the guts to do that. They also don't have the guts to answer why they get to draw a $225,000 salary for Governor Cuomo, but the working man and woman doesn't get to earn. 
They get to take our money, but we don't get to earn. They don't have the oh. guts to tell us that. That's the worst your kind story's, of leadership. Your story is getting a lot of attention. Uh, we thank you for your service, and we'll continue to watch where this story goes. Thanks for joining us tonight. The false heroics of shutting down your business and staying home have real consequences. Divorce, domestic violence, drug abuse, and suicide are skyrocketing. Living a lie is taking a toll. While the elderly are being neglected, mistreated, and often left to die alone. As I think about these people that are very much alone in their rooms with the intermittent presence of caregivers wearing all of this equipment that I think really can create even more distance even when somebody's right there with them. I've seen more crying doctors and nurses in the last two weeks than I remember in my career because of the stress that this places on them. Watching families have to be at a distance and patients being alone. His family members are telling me things to tell their loved one that they should be able to say themselves. I mean, I couldn't even imagine how heartbreaking and excruciatingly painful it would be um, to have to say goodbye to a loved one, you know, to say goodbye to your mom or to have to say goodbye to your dad. Or if you're a parent and you've got a sick child, you know, we have a uh, Phoenix Children's Hospital here in Phoenix, one of the biggest children's hospitals in the country. And, and, and sadly, you know, kids, you know, pass away sometimes. And to not allow these moms and dads in to be with their dying kids, to not allow uh, family members to come in and to hold their parents' hand that one final time, you know, to give dad a kiss on the forehead, you know, or to hug your mom one final time, you know, before she passes away. Like, that to me is literally the most inhumane uh, aspect of this entire COVID situation. And the fact that we've had so many people now that have literally had to die alone. We've had so many family members that have had to say goodbye to their loved ones over FaceTime um, because the hospitals were refusing to let family members inside um, meanwhile, their family members literally on their deathbed, waiting to take their last breath, and we're keeping people, you know, outside for those last crucial moments of life that people will never get back. I, I can't think of anything more inhumane to be done to not only a patient, but to a patient's family. This is where Britain's youngest person with coronavirus died yesterday. 13-year-old Ishmael Mohammed Abdul Wahab from Brixton was being treated at King's College Hospital in London. His family were unable to visit him and friends are tonight paying tribute. The tragic thing was that we couldn't go visit, that she had to die alone in a hospital. I couldn't touch her. I couldn't say goodbye. I had to see her through a window. Hang on a minute, don't take her away. Hey, don't take her away. Don't take her away. Don't take her away, you bastard.
bastards! You absolute bastards! It's not even something you can fathom. I mean, you just think, oh, you know, when it gets close to the end, they'll let, they'll let someone in. Like, they have to let someone in. People can't possibly do this by themselves. You can't, people can't die alone. Despite being a nurse here at UMass herself, Casey says this window replaced what would be a bedside moment of the most intimate of human experiences. Beth says Diane started pleading with anyone she could at the hospital last Friday to allow her to go. For three days, the answer remained no. Then the call came overnight on Sunday. Jim had passed. And after all that time, they said, but you can come now. You know, we were like, you can come now? Six feet separated them, but it might as well have been a mile. Girls, they can't get close, okay? This separation does not come naturally. Rose and Vincent Randazzo had been married 69 years, inseparable, until COVID visitor restrictions in March ended Vince's visits to see his Rose at Edna Tina Nursing Home. Hey, come here. Hey. Just, just come here. Held out her hands and it was just an automatic reaction to just hug her, you know. But COVID protocol prevented person-to-person -person contact. Jelsey and her grandfather mandated to stand several feet away. To not be able to hug her and embrace her um, and just have her cry out for me, it was, it was heart-wrenching. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. Rose, they can't get close, okay? Now 91 years old and drastically deteriorating in health, Rose does not understand why she cannot hug her family. Hey, please, you know, right there. I can't get closer. I, I can't, look, see the marks here? Yeah. Yeah, the aide threatened to take her back to her room if she wouldn't stop. Hmm? These guidelines are terrible. <laughs> She can stand there and touch my grandma, but I can't, I can't give her a hug. Then give me a shield. I can't do that. Then give me a shield or gloves. I'm going to be honest with you, I will cancel this visit. Then you're a cruel human being if you do that. I haven't seen her in seven months. But I'm sorry, I have rules that I have to go by. They have to go back. Jelsea's grandmother notices that a new baby is on the way. I was waiting to tell her in person um, about my pregnancy, and I was about seven months along. Jelsea's going to have another baby. Oh my God, God. Come on, we can't. She can't. She, she can't, right? Not now. You know, when I had my first son, she would touch my belly and talk to the baby, and that's what I, you know, that's what I wanted. But that never happens. In fact, Jelsey would only see her grandma in person one more time. Rose Violet passed away on December 8th. And I didn't get to hold her again, or kiss her, or touch her. This obviously happened to, I believe, millions 
of our most vulnerable, and we sat by and watched it happen. We, we stood outside the windows, we joined them by Zoom, they died alone, and it is a travesty. I believe it's a criminal actions in a lot of cases. I believe that it needs to be exposed um, on a grander scale than it has been. And we need to take personal responsibility for stopping this because we're now almost a year in and some people to this day have not been able to be with their loved ones. It is our responsibility, and it always been in history, to take care of the widows, to take care of those that were and set the examples for us. They are the people who defended the rights and liberties that we're here trying to protect today. They're the people that served in the wars, they went through the depression, they went through all of the things that we went through um, in their lifetimes. And it's our obligation to protect them, to love them, to care for them, and the majority of them should have a free right and choice to say, I choose, if I get this virus and die, I would be happier if I'm with my family than I would to be isolated and say that I was to stay uh, virus-free. When someone tests positive for coronavirus when they're in hospice or when they're in the nursing home, the first process that happens is they're removed from whatever room they're in. Often they share that room with multiple other people, people that they think of as their neighbors, people that they spend years with, and they're taken and placed into a room where there's no, no one else there. They have limited interaction with nursing staff because they're on quarantine, and they have no interaction with their families. As a result, they're often very depressed um, by the end of it. They're, they feel very alone. Uh, they often stay in this isolation for upwards to four weeks because they need a series of negative tests before they're allowed to return to their previous rooms. And when the staff go into the room, they usually have multiple masks on, face shield on. These people are very often hard of hearing and they have to see your mouth. It's, it's so often this happens, they cannot understand you without seeing your mouth. And so when there's all these masks and barriers between the nurses and the patients, even though they're going in there, they're offering very little companionship because the patients don't need to even understand what they're trying to say. So they have very little conversation. There's usually not even televisions. I mean, um, a lot of people might think that every person has a television in these nursing homes, but televisions are not very common. I think they're usually personal possessions and nobody is allowed to bring their personal possessions when they're placed in quarantine. Anything they want to retain and take back to their previous room has to stay in the previous room. It cannot go into quarantine with them. So books, crossword puzzles, television, none of that is permitted in quarantine. And so there's no form of escape and there's no interaction. So my, my wife's grandfather had a heart attack, went uh, into the hospital, tested negative, then tested positive, then they put him in a COVID ward, and then he ended up dying alone in a cold hospital bed, not surrounded by family, by himself. His wife of, I think, over 75 years is still alive, but she has been in another facility ever since October. So do you imagine being married to your soulmate for over 75 years and for the last three months of your life, being separated and then dying alone in a hospital bed? I couldn't imagine any of that. And I guarantee you this, and I can't ask him this question, but I know what I would want. 
If I would have went up to him and said, hey, Jaju, you have a choice right now. Would you rather die several years ago, be surrounded by family and loved ones, or would you rather die like you did? I know my answer. I would rather die several years before and be around family and not die alone. You know, my, my mother died in October, and she had been kept from her kids, grandkids, great-grandkids for seven months and then died. And I have photos from her of her a year before uh, she passed away. And they were pictures of my, you know, my son has a lot of children. She was holding a little infant in her arms and she was just so happy. And uh, her assisted living facility in Chicago robbed her of her, her greatest joy. I would say probably the majority of people in these nursing homes in assisted living, they live for the, the hugs, the touch, you know, the, the, the facial recognition of their family members. That's, that's the high point of their day or their week or their month. That's, that's what they live for. That's, that's, what, that's what my mom lived for. And I had a, have a patient who, she, she's 91, she's in assisted living. When the lockdown happened, she had a very devoted daughter who, who used to come every day. And when they shut her off, that daughter off, within two days, my 91-year-old patient stopped communicating. Before she, that, she was a pretty feisty, fun, you know, person. She completely stopped communicating. She, she didn't make, you know, she stopped making eye contact. She stopped talking. And then, and then eventually she stopped eating and eventually she stopped drinking fluids and she died, in, certain, in my opinion, from the isolation of COVID. And there are many, many of those kind of cases across the country. And the other bizarre thing that that 91-year-old was robbed of is that when her when they finally decided that her family members could come see her because we knew she was going to die within a day or two the daughter was allowed to come in the son from out of state was allowed to come in but the daughter and son could only go in that room if they were gowned gloved and masked and this woman this 91-year-old woman who died in that room she was in a room by herself and the brother and sister could not go in together. And so, so that la those last moments of touch and facial recognition and hugs or, or even a clear voice that's not speaking through a mask, you know, my patient was, was, was robbed of that. And this is being played out by I don't know how many, you know, senior citizens across the country. So, and, and I think if, if that woman and if my mother had, had had the option, if they, if they had been told that you can take, you know, there's a virus out there, it's really scary, it's killing people. You could take a chance with that virus, you know, you're gonna be risking that, that dangerous virus. Do you wanna see your family members and take that risk? My mother would have said, of course, I want to see my family. I need to see my family. My brother, who, my beloved older brother lives in Chicago. My mother would say to him, you know, almost every time they talk, you know, it's like, I have seven children. Why aren't you coming to visit me? Um, she'd say, John, why can't you just sneak up the back door? Can get me out of here? So anyway. So yeah, so, so they're saying that they care so much about the elderly, and that's why they're doing this to them. It's, it's, it's not true. You know, yes, elderly people, they're more prone to get viruses, bacteria, other infections. Of course, as we get older, we deteriorate. We all know about that. But they're also more prone to loneliness and despair. Old people, this is, like I said, this is what they live for. And so initially with this, I really thought the nursing home administrators meant well, that they were misguided, but they meant well. That's what I thought a while back. But then in June, I started reading the details of CARES Act 2020 and found out that $4.9 billion of CARES Act 2020 money went to these nursing homes in assisted living. So they're being paid. They're being paid money 
to torment these elderly people. They're getting paid for that. So there is no good intention there. And then if you add on top of that, the nursing homes and the assisted living facilities are testing their employees once or twice a week. That adds up to, they're making bank off of this and torturing these people. So no, I don't believe for a minute that, they care, that they're doing this because they care about the elderly. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than other animals. That famous line comes from George Arwell's Animal Farm. This is exactly the outcome when we allow governments to declare who is essential and who isn't. In school, we all had to read Animal Farm. And there's a particular scene in that book where the animals have liberated themselves from the farmer and they write a list of rules on the side of the barn. And as time progresses and the pigs that are in charge want to gain more power, they change the rules and the other animals on the farm don't understand or remember what the rules used to be. And that used to make me so angry uh, as a child because I thought if this is an allegory to how humans and society might act, it doesn't make sense to me because I thought humans wouldn't ever forget what the rules used to be. Humans wouldn't forget what history once was. But I misinterpreted what George Orwell wrote when he said that the animals were too stupid to remember what the rules used to be. I think what he intended to say was the animals were too stupid to want to remember what the rules used to be because it's just easier to forget than to hold on to the fact that we're being lied to and that the pigs are just gaining more power in the process. You're starting to realize and understand that all the sacrifices that you did over the past year, the things that were told to you, the sacrifices you did for the business, the sacrifices you did for your kids, you're starting to realize and understand that it wasn't truthful. You weren't told the truth. And so you did these sacrifices under a false narrative. And I know you're doubting because you want to believe that you did everything that you could to get us through this thing. And it's okay to be angry. And it's okay to be frustrated. But the biggest thing that you can do is just look for the research. Look for the science, turn off the news, turn off the social media, and actually read on some things. And you're going to start to realize that we could have done this a lot differently. And we probably would be a whole heck of a lot farther ahead if we would have. Everybody that's watching right now, the Fall Down 7 Get Up 8. Don't you ever quit. Don't you ever lose hope. This is not over by any stretch of the imagination. Don't let yourself think for one minute that the enemies of freedom have won. Generations before us have had to go through serious attacks against their liberties, and they stood up and they prevailed. We are at that juncture in our history, in our generation right now. This is not over. It is a fight that we can win. And I believe with all of my heart, it is a fight we will win. We have the power. We have the mass of people. We can stop this if we're willing. Throughout this last year, 
in America. We have seen the only places where people were not caught up and repressed with this tyranny are places where you had local officials who stood up for them. You need to start working right now with the people in your community. You need to start making connections with other individuals in your community to make sure that if they're gonna set up a system where you're not gonna be able to move, where you're not gonna be able to have a job, where you're not gonna be able to go to the grocery store to buy food, that you can grow your own food in cooperation with others. So you need to start setting up local co-ops where you're going to be able to barter and to work with other people. You need to start rebuilding your society, quite frankly, from the bottom up. So much of our society has been destroyed in so many different ways that I think this is going to be the basis on which we're gonna rebuild our society. Local communities, local neighborhoods, local churches, as you start to get to know other people, it's the exact opposite. It is as counter as you can be with what they want to impose on us. What do they wanna do? They want to isolate us individually. They want each of us physically separated from everybody else. They want each of us connected, if we make any connections to any other humans, we have to connect through their internet system or through their technology. So we have to reject that. We have to set up our own system that is going to operate outside of that. We have to rebuild our society from the bottom up. There are more of us than there are of them. I want to be very clear about this message. The one thing that everyone can do is to refuse testing. And this is because testing is the primary tool that is being used to create artificial cases of a disease which characterize healthy people. And the number of cases that are found by this meaningless test in healthy people is the main reason that the government is using to shut us down and take away our freedoms. And if you submit for any reason to this test, you are driving that tyranny forward. Doctor is Latin for teacher. You're a teacher. You got into being a doctor to help people. And if we can't get to the root cause and tell the truth, Man, are we really part of the problem or part of the solution? And those doctors that are watching this, I would encourage you to, to ask yourself this question. And this was the big question that I asked myself. What are the history books going to say about you? What are they going to say about you 5, 10, 15, 20, 100 years from now? What, what are they going to say like when, when I'm sitting around Thanksgiving and my family and my grandkids and my great-grandkids years from now are going to say, Hey, great-grandpa Naputi, what, what did you do during 2020 when, man, they tried to take away our freedoms. They tried to force us to do things that we couldn't. They, they were the ones that were trying to, what did you do, grandpa? Did you sit in the basement and do nothing and just hope that things would be better? Or did you stand up for what was right? Did you stand up for a common goal, a conversation? Did you stand up for common sense and critical thinking? I think the answer is clear what I'm going to be doing. What are you going to be doing? Are you going to be sitting in your basement? Are you going to wait for someone else to throw the, the flag up to go, hey, this is okay, you can come out of your hole now? Or are you going to wake up and go, wait a minute, bodies aren't stacking up. Wait a minute, they're pushing towards an agenda. They're saying the only way that I can get immune now is to get a vaccine. What about natural immunity? Natural immunity always overrides and supersedes a vaccine, but yet they change the definition. That doesn't make sense. There's all these things that are called COVID sense, not common sense now and you get to be the decision. But the cool thing is, is that God gave you and gave me free will, so the only person that's gonna be able to make up that decision is you. The Elite Push, Fake Diversity and Inclusion. 
The truth is that every single one of us is essential. We are all being lied to. No matter your age, creed, or color, if you're a man or a woman, we need to stop living in fear. Complying with lockdowns is a surefire way to get more of them. Remember, where the people fear the government, there is tyranny. But when the government fears the people, there is liberty. When enough people stand together, united, governments will back off and resume their proper role in society. Keep your businesses open and join us in the next episode as we uncover the truth about face masks. We truly are living in a crazy world today. So many horrible stories out there, so many terrible things happening. There's nothing more depressing anymore than just watching the news and just being horrified by the stories that you hear. 
And often people, they hear these stories and uh, they feel like they can't even be shocked anymore. And then lo and behold, another story comes and just completely shocks them. Things that we would never expect to happen. We're seeing those things happen. And often this causes people to question whether or not there is a God. I mean, why would God allow something like this? But I'm afraid what we forget is that when God made this world, the Bible says in Genesis 1, verse 31, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the first day. God made a good world. God made a perfect world, but it was man that brought sin into this world. And whether we want to admit it or not, when we look at all the evil that's going on in the world, we need to understand that uh, one of the reasons there's some of the evil people that are out there is because evil has been done to them too. And they have, in return, uh, rendered evil for evil, which we're not supposed to do. But the truth is, we've all contributed to that. We've all sinned against others. We've told lies. We've lost our temper. We've been dishonest. We have contributed in one way or another to all the bad that's going on in this world. And that goes all the way back to our common ancestor, Adam, who brought sin into the world when he violated God's law and he ate of that forbidden fruit. And Romans 5.12 tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin had entered, entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So it was man that brought sin into the world. And we have all contributed in that area. But you know what's interesting? When man sinned, when man uh, ate of that forbidden fruit, the Bible tells us in Genesis 3, 7, and the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. One thing that man has always done in an attempt to make up for his sins or cover his own sins, he's always tried to do something on his own to cover those sins or to make them right. And the truth is, those aprons, they weren't enough. Those weren't satisfactory to a holy God. And the works that we do, the things that we attempt to try to make up for the sins of our past, they're not acceptable to a holy God. We can't repent of enough sin. We can't just you know have enough reformation or change our life enough that would be uh, sufficient to the standard of a holy God. Now, you and I, we often have very low standards because we're used to sin. We are sinners ourselves, but God, there is no sin in him. And you might not think your sin's a big deal, but it's because you're a sinner. And we're not holy like God is. The Bible says in Romans 3:10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. They are all gone. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Any attempt that you can make to just turn your life around and be more religious, you're still going to come short of God's glory. But many people today, they still think, no, I can, I can make up for my sins. I can cover my own sins. I'll be real good. I'll obey all those commandments in the Bible. But Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law 
to do them. So at the end of the day, while you can try all you want to make up for your sins and be good, you're still under the curse because you've sinned. And thankfully though, even though we're sinful, even though we're the ones that have messed everything up, for some reason that I'll never understand, but I believe it because the Bible tells me this, God loves us. God still loves man. And God does not want us, even though we are in a sin-cursed earth that is heading for destruction, God still wants us to be able to have hope. And that hope is in his son, Jesus Christ. And John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And just like one man, Adam, brought sin into the world, the Bible teaches us that one man, Jesus Christ, brought life to the world. And we can have that life not through being a good person because we've already messed that up, not through being more religious or fulfilling some rituals. We can have that free gift through faith by just believing on what Jesus Christ did. Jesus died as payment for our sins. He was buried and he rose again, conquering death in the grave. And because of that, he is able to offer us that gift of eternal life completely free. And even though our world is crazy and things are going down a very dark path, I'm thankful to know that while I might have some problems here in this earth and the flesh, when it comes to my eternal soul, it's secure, it's safe because of Jesus Christ and what he did. One day he's gonna come back and he'll set everything straight. He'll take care of all those things. And I'm glad I don't have to be on the receiving end of judgment because Jesus took my judgment on the cross of Calvary. This film by itself is not gonna turn the tide against tyranny. And you sharing this film isn't going to defeat the New World Order. But all of us together are gonna to be able to defeat this system if we understand that standing up and saying no and fighting back is the only course. That submission is literally a prison planet that enslaves not just us, but our children and future generations. So please count the cost and visit the important website, covidland.com, to get this incredibly important film. And when you order the film, you are authorized, you are encouraged to make copies and share it, to rip copies of it, to upload it, to download it, to get it out there however you can. Because together again, we have incredible power in numbers when we decide to use our will and take action. And when you do order a copy of COVIDland, at covidland.com, you'll get a free copy of my seminal film, Endgame, Blueprint for Global Enslavement, that came out now almost 15 years ago and documents the globalist plan to take us to this point. And some people make jokes and say, oh, what's coming out next, VHS? And my answer is yes, with the incredible AI censorship, it's going to be old records, it's going to be old books, it's going to be cassette tapes and laser discs and DVDs and old hard drives that have the real history of what happened on them. So absolutely, it probably will be Morse code and smoke signals by the time the globalists are done with us. That's why we've got to fight back now. So even if you can't afford a copy of the film to support the production of future films, that's fine. Share this 
film that you're watching for free online because that action will change the world. Thank you so much for watching. God bless and good luck. The answer to 1984 is 1776. InfoWars has been banned. Arrested. Attacked and threatened. Because we are effective. The Great Awakening is here. Go to band.video. Download the videos and share. Support the information war at InfoWarsStore.com. And never give up the fight. InfoWars.com